Lord, we just thank you for today and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you uh, in, in communion with one another. And uh, Lord, I just thank you so much for the fact that your word is living, that it, it penetrates our hearts and our souls and that it speaks to us. God, I pray that it wouldn't just fly over us or go around us, but instead it would actually be embedded within our DNA. And Lord, that it would just, it would transform us and change us in such a way that we begin to become even more productive servants of you. And God, I just thank you for the fact that we have this beautiful weather and that we have this beautiful building and that we can come and worship you with all of our hearts and souls without persecution. And God, I just pray that today would just be a great day of motivation, encouragement, and a great day where we just turn around and bring honor and glory to your name. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm just going to read through uh, the, the scripture that I want to preach on today, just to kind of give you the over, uh, overview of it first, and then I'll kind of go into all the details, if that's all right, okay? So feel free to keep your Bibles open to that scripture, and then as I move through it, and I'll be moving through it fairly fast, um, you know, then you can kind of refer back to what I, what I was saying before, or uh, what we read before. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days closed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and will overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, these men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because the two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, where their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. That's a lot to take in. And there is a lot of imagery in there. And there's a lot of things going on. And so I just kind of want to go through a couple of things that might help us a little bit when it comes to understanding this scripture. I'm trying to see if I can... Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. I want to start off this sermon by giving you a qualifier. It's going to be a long one. Okay. But I'm just going to give you a bit of a qualifier here. This is a Christian sermon, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, 
you know, and hopefully sermons are Christian. But I mean, uh, it is a challenge to Christians about our witness. Okay? It's important for us to understand that. Because if we don't understand that concept, what we end up doing is trying to apply things that are supposed to be encouragements for us as believers and those who have their lives surrendered to God. We try to apply those things to other people in the world. And that doesn't work so hot. Okay? The rest of the world doesn't understand the truth. And they don't get a lot of the things that we'll get because they're not believers and they're not, they don't have lives surrendered to God. And they, they, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're just not there yet. And so we can't go around expecting the rest of the world to behave like us. And this just happens to be one of those sermons where it's actually really a beautiful, wonderful encouragement for us as believers, which is so cool. And I'm not saying a person who's not a believer couldn't get anything from it. Trust me, they could. I mean, it's just, you know, we just kind of have to understand that concept, that there are evangelistic times, you know, or, you know, some of the messages and some of the things that are even said in the Bible are very applicable to people who are non-believers. But then there's other times where it's like, no, this is really speaking to the heart of believers. And that's okay. I mean, there's just those kinds of sermons, right? And so, um, you know, on that note, I kind of wanted to touch on this one subject, okay? How do we wield our faith, all right? What do you mean by that, Pastor John? Well, do, do, do we choose to smack others in the face with unrecognizable and seemingly foolish truth, expecting them to like it, to get it, or to appreciate it, or even understand it? Um, the reason why I ask us that question is because that's what we do. Sometimes we, we, we take this, right, and proverbially like, smack people in the face with it that aren't walking with God. They have no idea that this is truth, you know? I mean, the fact that you're in here and the fact that you have a relationship with God and the fact that, you know, all of this is kind of falling in line with you and making sense to you is a miracle, it's an absolute miracle. It's not your doing. It's the Holy Spirit that has come, quickened your heart, awoke you. Right? And the rest of the world just doesn't understand that. They don't get it yet. Like God has not revealed that to them through either people or whatever. I mean, he just hasn't happened. And sometimes we go around wielding our Christian you know, values and everything else and psh, psh, you know, trying to take people out with them. And it's just like, guys, like, they're not going to get it. They see no value in it whatsoever. And to a lot of the world, like the Bible tells us, it looks like foolishness. Okay? And so to understand that concept, it's really important for us to understand that. You know? Because I, I just see a lot of damage done otherwise. I mean, we're, we're trying to force something down their throat that they're not even, they're looking at it they're like, that's not even food. You know? And it's just, it's not, it's not okay, right? So, um... We must remember that the world does not understand the truth, nor does it recognize it. We cannot expect them to see the beauty or the value in what we know to be the truth, especially if they have not experienced it. Think about it, hey, like before, I mean, all this Jesus, Christian stuff, like whatever, but I mean, once God awoke in your heart, like, like you know, when Pastor Darren was up here and talking about his amazing love, right, and the depth of it and everything, I mean, once he's quickened your heart to that, it's like it makes perfect sense. And when Pastor Darren's excited, it gets me excited. It sends shivers up my spine because I know what he's talking about, right? And so, yeah, just to, just to make the point, right? We have to be very mindful of that when we're talking to other people um, about what they should or shouldn't believe in or what they should or shouldn't do. I mean, we have to be sensitive to that, very sensitive to that, 
right? And let's remember that we too at one time were dead, deaf and blind, with hearts of stone. And then God entered and melted our hearts with the miracle of his grace. Praise Jesus that he did. You know, and we have to have that same sort of understanding and patience for others. So, back to the qualifier, okay? Um, there are other sermons for non-believers and seekers to evangelize, to reach those who have not heard the good news, but this is a challenge to those who follow Christ about our witness. So, the struggle of being a witness, surrender to God, yeah, this is, this is you know, over this last year, like I was saying before, um, you know, it's been very hard for me. There were times I found it really, really difficult to read my Bible, Okay, a pastor, right? I'm supposed to be able to read the Bible. I'm supposed to glean lots from the Bible. That's what I'm supposed to be teaching my kids, like the youth, out of, right? It's heart-wrenching when it's difficult to pick up God's word. It's heart-wrenching. It's like you've got this weird, you know, wall between you and him, and, and they're sitting there trying to pray and, and not even having words to pray, coming to completely the end of yourself and just knowing that, knowing that he's there but not sensing his presence at all. You know, I mean, I don't know if some of you have been there or if you're there right now or whatever, but I just want to say it as an encouragement. I mean, he's always there. But I know what it's like to, to be in that spot where it's just like a desert, a complete desert. And everything is hard and it's difficult right? I mean, I was at the end of myself, like just completely. It's, it's a struggle to be a witness to God because, I mean, serving him even in the midst of that, right? Like, I mean, what does it mean to come in here and do your sermons and, and be with the kids and, and, and to kind of do things with them or to even have motivation to want to do something with them or come up with new events or anything? Like, I mean, that's what God asked me to do. That's what he asked me to do, but doing it was hard, Okay, so being a surrendered witness to God in whatever capacity he's asked you to do that, I'm just going to say there will be times where it is hard, right? And that's kind of what this message is about a little bit. It's, it's a bit of an encouragement for you saying he knows, he knows all of it. But he's there. He's there to fill you with his power. He's there to carry you through, you know? There were time, and then there's going to be times when others have to come around you and lift you up and carry you through as well. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like, it's just kind of one of those things where, like, you know, my leaders came around me too. Some of my leaders even preached for me at times. Like, they just, they knew that I couldn't do it, and they just were like, it's okay, John, you know? But to be a surrendered witness to, for God, like, it's just, you know, it's, it's difficult. The more we understand about culture, the more we can make sense of the text, that's something that I hope you hear from Pastor, you do hear from Pastor Paul all the time, I know. But it's just like, I hope you pick up on it and stuff like that. The more that we understand about the culture in which the Bible was originally written to, right, the more we can actually understand the text. The reason why is because it was written to those people at that time. And that's something that we really need to keep in mind when we're looking at Revelation. It was written to seven churches, okay? And it was written to seven churches at a specific point in time. So understanding the culture will help us make sense out of that. I'm going to use an example from Laodicea. If you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Everyone's like, whoa, 
I mean, this is Jesus addressing the church in Laodicea, okay? The reason why this makes so much sense to the Laodiceans is because they were known for a few things. Medical advances beyond anything anyone else knew, especially ointments for eyes. They were known for that in the Roman world. They were also known for their textiles. They made amazing clothes. They had like this really nice, rich purple linen And also they had these amazing clothes and they were wealthy, like wealthy, 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 really well-to-do. And so Christ is actually basically hitting them right where it hurts. He's addressing something. He's saying, listen, you think you've got these awesome ointments that, that take care of all the health problems. You think you've got, you know, clothes that are awesome and you think you've got gold and you're so self-sufficient, but here's the thing. You don't realize that you're actually naked. You don't realize that you can't see. You don't realize that your gold is worth nothing. Without me, you're worth nothing. And they would have got that because it was hitting them in their circumstance, in their culture, in their time. Okay? So that helps us understand the scripture so much more. Otherwise, we're kind of looking at it and we're like, you know, I mean, we make sense out of some of it, but not to that depth, right? Whereas them, it's like, whoa. And then we can actually glean something from that. We're like, well, hey, do we have medical advances? Totally. Are you kidding? We're living in a you know, part of the world where it's like amazing medical advances, right? I mean, we have awesome clothes and we, we're very well taken care of. We have a great social welfare system and all the rest of that jazz. I mean, we've got, we're, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And so for us, we can actually glean information from that even knowing it wasn't necessarily written directly to us. Okay? So this is all part of the qualification. I'm sorry. So a couple things to keep in mind. This is part one. Who is the book written to? Huh? The churches. Okay? And it actually tells us that it was. It's Revelation 1.4. John, to the seven churches in, in the province of Asia. There we go. That's who it was written to. No need to argue about it. That's who it was written to. Okay? Second thing is when was it written? Well, we know it was kind of written around 70 AD. Okay? Because we know that John was still alive. Right? Which is good to know. Okay? So John was there. So it couldn't have been too far past that. And he was also on the island of Patmos. And we know that this was interesting. This is important because it helps us understand that the Roman Empire was still kind of doing its thing. Because that's where they kicked all the criminals, right? They exiled people to the island of Patmos. Okay, that was their deal. You know? I jokingly said in the first service, it's kind of like, you know, Australia, where they shipped all the criminals. But I'm sorry, I apologize if any of you are from Australia. But you understand what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> But uh, anyway, yeah, that's what they did. So we can kind of get a time frame from it. So that's important for us to understand. Around 70 AD, what was going on? You know, well, the Roman Empire was in power. Okay, so why was it written? And there's lots of reasons why. Okay, many possibilities. All right, so we can't get too hung up on, on that. All right, because I'm going to show you one part of it, but I don't think it's the only part. So there we go. We can start diffusing some of the arguments we normally have about Revelation. We can just kind of go, listen, we know that it was written to certain people. We know it was written during a certain time, and there's several possibilities of why it was written. So let's look at one of them, you know? And then it's all of a sudden not such an intimidating book, right? Revelation 1, 4b to, sorry, 4b to 6, yeah. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What a source of encouragement, right? This is coming from the big guy. 
the one in charge, just so that you know. And he's in charge of all things. King over kings. Like, I mean, during a time when the emperor was exalting himself as a god, during a time when he was downplaying everything else and calling himself savior, you know, in a time when he was demanding worship from everyone, Jesus comes along and says, funny, I'm king of kings and lord of lords. Okay? This is important for believers during that time. Okay? To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, how much more encouraging is that? Freed us from our sins, right? And has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve as God and Father. Now we have purpose. There's another point just in that. He made us to be kingdom and priests. We have purpose. We're part of his plan. It's not just that he freed us. He has a purpose for us, okay? To him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. This is all within the first part of the book. So it's setting up everything for us and it's kind of giving us an idea of why we should be looking at it and maybe what we can glean from it, okay? Sets the premise for us so we don't have to go off on weird rabbit trails or anything like that, all right? Second thing to keep in mind, we become so fixated on certain aspects of any part of God's word that we fail to recognize some of the important things that he may be trying to communicate to us as he was trying to communicate to those who were his original readers slash hearers. Sometimes we spend so much time arguing about the details that we actually miss the meaning. Okay? We gotta, you know, kind of not do that, <laughs> you know, um, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, like, if we're missing the point, that's really sad. You know, if we're getting so wrapped up in useless arguments about times, dates, periods, who's this, who's that, or whatever, we actually miss the point. And just let me, you know, many spent so much time arguing about who Jesus Christ was that they missed what he was trying to teach them. Isn't that fascinating? Like, well, what do you mean? Well, let's take a look at it. The people surrounded him and asked him, sorry, this is John 10, 24 to 33, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Just tell us. And he's like, uh, okay, fine. You know, Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is in the work that I do in my Father's name. You know, he's like, if you're paying attention, you would know. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. That's got like Messiah written all over it, okay? Like, I mean, he's literally telling them, this is who I am. You have eternal life because of what I do for you. So he's telling them, okay? For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. I am the Messiah, okay? He's making a bold statement there. Here's what they do. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my father's discretion, I have done many good works. For which one are you stoning me? And they say, we're stoning you not for any good work, but you're for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. So they ask him for the answer. He tells them, and then they want to kill him for it. And it's just like, you know, the focus was in the wrong place, wasn't it? They were so fixated on what he should have looked like that they could not get over it. They just couldn't. They couldn't get past it. And the deal was like, I mean, he's telling them in words, he's showing them with his works, and yet 
It's not good enough, right? And I, I don't mean to single them out or pick on them or anything because we could all be in that same scenario, couldn't we? The, the, the point is, is that we become too fixated sometimes on the things that aren't so important and we miss the message, okay? Also, this uh, scripture here, John 10, 14 to 21, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Once again, this has got Jesus written all over it. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. He's talking about Gentiles at this point in time, right? It's not just the Jews anymore. Now we're talking about Gentiles coming in. This is so cool, right? So he's revealing even plans that he's got here. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I, make it, I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want and also to take it up again. I don't know who you know, but I don't know anyone else who can do that other than God, right? For this is what my Father has commanded. When he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said he was demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said that it doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of them? So they're arguing again about who he is. They just, all of that beautiful stuff that he said is just, woo You know? Anyway, why do I bring all that up? Because, you know, um, one of the things that we do is we become too fixated too. So when we're looking at the book of Revelation, we become too fixated on the identity of the witnesses in this case, okay? There's been lots of argumentation over who they are, you know? And we can end up becoming so fixated on the arguments about who they are that we end up not seeing what they're trying to say to us, okay? What the message, the underlying message is. So that's my point. Okay, there's lots of arguments. There's, there's ideas that they're Elijah and Enoch, uh, Moses and Elijah, Peter and Paul, and there's all great arguments for that stuff, okay? It's not that I'm saying that they're wrong, or it's not that I'm saying that they're not actually those people or anything. All I'm saying is let's not argue so much about it that we miss the message. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, the who instead of the what. Uh, the problem arises when we assume that a specific application of the principle of the suffering witnesses is the text's only proper interpretation. So there's another problem that we can run into, okay? Hans Huff, for example, one of the most effective and devoted Anabaptist evangelists of the 1500s, thought the two witnesses were the martyred Thomas Munzer and his co-worker. Thus, he expected Christ's return in 1528. He died too soon to see his prediction disconfirmed. And that's just it, right? We become too fixated, and then all of a sudden we've got an idea, and then that idea. But, I mean, he's just saying there's no point to that, you know? Also the when, instead of the what. Many are concerned about the end of days and would ask Jesus about them. Jesus would often try to refocus them. Let's take a look at a scripture. Mark 13, 32 to 33. Jesus says this, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows, and since you don't know when that time will be or come, be on guard and stay alert. <laughs> and I put that in bold and underline it because I think that's his point, right? 
He's like, you guys, are tra- you guys are getting off focus here. You're all kind of wondering when times and this and that and the other thing. And he's like, none of us are supposed to know that stuff anyway. Be on guard and stay alert. And one of the primary underlying themes of Revelation is going to be that we need to persevere in the midst of everything that's going on in the world. And it was written to the church back then telling them because they were going through an unprecedented time of persecution. And God was trying to speak to their hearts saying, don't waver on this, okay? Continue to persevere in the faith. Believe. Continue to be faithful witnesses regardless of what's happening to you because the world's going to try to pressure you and persuade you to go in all different directions and I'm asking you to stay the course. And, you know, it's no different than Christ's message here. Be on guard. Stay alert. You know, don't worry about times and dates and everything else. It's going to come when it's going to come. You know? So, uh, in order to properly understand this passage, then we should remain aware of the fact that Revelation was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor during a time when the Roman Empire was in power and, and just really crazy stuff was going on for them. One of the many ways to help us ensure that we don't get too off track when we're looking at the passage, we can ask ourselves this question, whether the witnesses are literal, figurative, representative, or any combination of the three, what is the passage telling us? So even if they are literal people, what is the passage telling us about that, right? Even if they are figurative and just representative of the church, maybe, what is it telling us? You know, because these are all arguments of who they were, okay? With all of that in mind, then, we should attempt to answer the question, what, if anything, can we gather from the passage in Revelation? Always something for us, just so that you know. And remembering, ultimately, that there is much we can glean from this passage, okay? Even knowing we're in a church that's been, that's now 2,000 years apart from its original readers. Okay? Still something for us. It's amazing, hey? So, with all of that in mind, okay, I now go into the three points, which I've got to execute very rapidly, um, sorry about that. <laughs> this a great friend of mine came up to me and said, John, I know you get off track all the time. Um, get through your points, okay? And I was like, okay, I'll stay on track and everything. So got to be diligent. I promised him I would. Um, the first thing that the, witness teaches us, the witnesses teach us about our following Christ is that to follow means we contribute, Okay? The two witnesses provide role models for us to be spirit-empowered witnesses to the world, ready to pay any cost and utterly dependent on God's power to accomplish his purposes. That's fantastic. What do I mean by all, what does Keener mean by all that? Well, he means to remind us that these guys didn't just do their job, if we're looking them at, at them literally, let's say, just for, just for the sake of argument, Okay. If we're looking at them literally, these guys were spirit-empowered, weren't they? They didn't just do it on their own. They didn't just have to operate in their own strength or anything like that. Like, the Holy Spirit was filling these guys to do their job, okay? They had a specific job that God was asking them to do, and man, were they charged up. I mean, it gives us a picture of fire coming out of their mouth. I mean, these guys were filled with power. They had power to control plagues and all the rest of this stuff. It's just a picture of the fact that these guys were spirit-empowered. Okay? And so are we. That's the great thing about it. What does it have to say to us? Well, so are you. You have the same Holy Spirit living within you. Amen. You know? And he's no less powerful just because he's in your frame. 
okay? And so we're spirit-empowered. And, and here's the thing. Fourteen, sixteen to 17, and I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. This is what he's given us. I mean, even Pastor Amy, when she, you know, ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. 
right? He's not just talking about healings and stuff. I mean, he's talking about his Holy Spirit coming and being with you. That's amazing, right? We do not testify in a weak way. Fire and power. These guys testify like, I mean, they were throwing it out there, man. I mean, we don't testify in a weak way. I mean, the words of God, they burn, <laughs> right? They do. And that's so cool for us to know that when our words go out of our mouth, it's not our own words, it's the Holy Spirit, okay? And those words will penetrate hearts, just like it did for us. Each one of us, right, who's received Jesus Christ as Lord. How cool. So the second thing, to follow is countercultural. This is kind of a hard one to swallow. We are having more and more trouble discerning between conviction and condemnation, between what is loving and what is judgmental. This culture has become, like, the lines are being blurred and all of that. So anything that's convicting is starting to become condemning, okay? And anything that is, like, loving that we could be doing for someone is becoming judgmental now. I use an illustration in the first service is kind of picking on my daughter a little bit because I was having a conversation with her. She's smart as a whip and she gets these really good grades. Sorry, I'm bragging about you and I'm putting you on the spot. doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she's, she does really well in school. So I kind of threw out a joke, you know, and I was just kind of like, so they failed you, right? Like, you know, they're keeping you back from going into high school. That's more for my security than anything else, you know? It was kind of like, yeah. Uh, it was just a joke, though. And she didn't even laugh. Like, she just kind of looked at me like, you know, that was stupid. Um, but, you know, the, the one thing that did come out of her mouth was they don't hold anyone back, Dad. And I was just like, what? You know, I mean, there was no fear there and stuff like that. And I mean, I use it as an illustration. I'm not trying to take a position on that or anything, so please don't read into that. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Like, the world is becoming less tolerant of us holding people accountable, right? And if there's a little bit of conviction, people are like, well, that was a condemning thing. You know? Or if you're doing something loving, like rescuing your brother or your sister and trying to speak into their life and let them know that something might not be going so well, they're like, you're just judgmental. The world is becoming less tolerant of that. Okay? And so, the world loves ignorance, as far as I'm concerned. Ignorance is bliss. No, I don't have to have anything convicting spoken into my life. I don't have to have anything judgmental. So fine, everything's good. Revelation 11.10 this is after the two witnesses have been killed by the beast that comes up from the abyss, okay? The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. What kind of torment are they talking about? I think, it, it just, this is I, okay? So yes, this is my interpretation. But at the same time, it just seems obvious to me that the words that were coming out of their mouth were tormenting because it was convicting. I mean, you can't, I mean, you know... How do you like standing around someone who's even, their life looks different than yours, you know? I had a buddy that would come up to me when I was still, you know, like this is before, you know, it was, I don't know, my earlier days. And there was a couple of friends of mine that, that would drink very heavily. And they would come up to me and I would be so, like I'd be sober, I'd be walking with them and stuff like that. And they'd be like, John, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm just like, what are you sorry about? And they're just like, well, I'm so sorry I'm in my state. Like, the fact that you're just walking a certain way convicts people. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. The world doesn't like it. Like, it can't tolerate those things. It just doesn't have, 
It's convicting in and of itself. You won't even need to say things sometimes, okay? The world rejoices in the death of the witnesses. This suggests that the world would rather enjoy deception than hear unpleasant truth. Ooh. Let's hope that we're not enjoying deception instead of hearing unpleasant truth, right? Because unpleasant truth is still truth, and it's still really good for us, no matter what it's it, no matter what it is, right? As long as it's truth. And it's usually life-giving, you know? I always use the illustration of a parent running out into the street to grab their child and bring them in. That's a loving parent, okay? But a parent who just goes, ah, I don't want them to feel condemned or judged. Let them run in the street. Is that loving? No. You take that child in and you bring them in and you kind of give them a stern talking to, so hopefully it kind of rattles them a bit, right? And then they're kind of like, oh, so that they don't run out and get hit by a car. You know, that's loving. It's protection. It's life. The world will not, take, will not like what we have to say. Um, even if we bring good news in a non-confrontational way, it will still be met with hostility at times because it means change. It means surrender. It means conviction. Quite literally, it means death to some. They won't necessarily like it. Okay? I had a friend ask me about Jesus once, and he wanted to know why I believed. And I was telling him that I just I had surrendered my life, and he had such a hard time understanding that concept, and had literally told me, well, my kids are my savior. I mean, he just didn't want to hear about Jesus being a savior. I've, I've decided, he said, you know. That was really interesting, right? So we can't always expect the world to be totally receptive. Perhaps the witness's death helps us understand that death cannot silence the church's witness, but martyrdom may be part of the ministry. There's another thing that we need to keep in mind. I mean, I don't mean to get all doom and gloom, but at the same time, I mean, martyrdom is a part of witness. It just is. And sometimes martyrdom comes in different styles. Can I twist it a little bit maybe for our culture? Maybe it doesn't mean that someone's going to come up to you and take your life because of the way, you know, the way that you talk about Christ. But maybe they'll tell you to shut up right in the middle of a public venue. You know? Or maybe they'll call you out and hurt you in front of other people. I actually had that happen to me at my workplace one time. And they just called me out on it and just like totally... It just threw me down in so many ways. Not this workplace, another workplace. <laughs> I could better qualify that, right? But it happens, doesn't it? It's part of the ministry. And we kind of need to kind of get that in our being and just know that, you know what, it's part of it. And, and it's okay, you know? It shouldn't scare us away. Uh, in suffering, we can identify with the two witnesses because like them and like our Lord, death is not the end for us. Hallelujah. Right? No matter what, no matter what happens, no matter where God takes you, no matter what's going on in life, even death isn't the end. How great is that? What amazing news. Yeah, it's okay, guys. Don't worry. I was told this was going to happen. There's like a mass exodus happening right now. <laughs> He's like, oh, everyone's like, what did he just say, right? But thanks for coming, guys. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm glad they told me before, because otherwise I would have been like, what? Um, Anyway, salvation. Regardless, we must keep in mind that some of those who ridicule our message now may repent later. This is probably the most important point for me. This, this speaks to my soul because there is, a, there is a very specific person I'm thinking of right now. I won't name names or anything, but uh, I was at my daughter's dance recital once and I was driving away and I had had an encounter with a person there and it was just a really bad encounter and, you know, they were just being very vile and different things were happening and stuff like that. I don't think I was handling myself well either. I've been kind of doing a lot of reflection on that lately. But, you know, the thing was, is I remember driving away, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if that person could ever be saved. And as soon as I thought it, God was like, how dare you, kind of a thing. And it just kind of moved through my spirit. You know, like it says, not to grieve the spirit, right? Like, I felt like I grieved the spirit at that point. And I was just like, it, it shook me to my core. You know, because I was just like, we can never get to that point. Because we, too, were there. You know, and it's only by his grace, his mercy, his love, his miracle that we come to know him. Right? So we have to keep that in mind too. Some of the most people that will give us the hardest time might become the most strongest proponents for Jesus. So be faithful. Persevere in your witness. Don't change. Okay? The witness's passage is not all doom and gloom. This passage reminds us that the message we carry is life liberty, and happiness in their truest form. Life, eternal life. Freedom from sin. Sin. Freedom from sin. And happiness, happiness for eternity. That's what it is. So the three things the witnesses teach us about following Christ. One, to follow means we contribute. Two, to follow is countercultural. It will be, okay? And that's okay. We can prepare for that. And three, to follow means we recognize God is in control of our lives. Isn't that amazing? He's in control of it all. He's got time in his hands. It's all good. Uh, I don't really have time to go through the entire third point, but he's, he's in control of time. He's in control of your life, Okay? Um, the, the dates and stuff, there's, there's dates. Well, there's not really dates, but there's periods of time and stuff, and there's a lot of them in this chapter. And a lot of people argue over that stuff, like, well, what's the 1260 days, and, and what's the, you know, the three and a half days, and what does it all mean? And if we see that, then we know for sure. And it's, and it's just like, guys, really, what those things are telling us is that God's got a plan, and it happens in his time. And that should be a very reassuring thing for us. Everything happens in his time, right? It's like it took us six years for a a miracle to happen, you know? Um, It's all in his time, you know? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so very much today for, for being able to just, you know, be with you, hear from your word and what it has to speak into our lives. And Lord, I pray that as witnesses, we would be faithful that we would persevere, Lord, that we would remember that we don't witness out of our own strength, that we don't witness, Lord, in a weak way, but that we witness in power because we're filled with your spirit. 
and that we have a beautiful message to take to the world, even if it doesn't recognize it or even if it rejects it at first or, or even if it never understands it. Lord, your truth is amazing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's life-giving. Would we persevere in that and would we remain steadfast in the faith and not waver and keep our eyes fixed upon you? Jesus, I pray that you would be honored and glorified by this all today. I pray this in your name. Amen.